In this episode of Titans of ServiceNow, we interview Mark Scott, ServiceNow developer MVP and content creator. Plenty of links in the description below, so be sure to check that out. Remember, the end goal of Titans of Now is an interview with the man himself, Fred Luddy. But I can't do it alone. If you enjoy this content, please introduce it to your network. If you want to know what I'm up to lately, I invite you to check out Vivid Charts and stop exporting data off the platform for reporting. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Titans of Now. As always, I am your host, Robert Fedoric. Today I have a real treat. I have Mark Scott, super prolific on social media, new to ServiceNow live streaming, ServiceNow content creator extraordinaire, and newly minted developer MVP. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey everybody, thanks for having me. So the reason I have Mark on the show is that ServiceNow has recently rolled out a program called Developer MVP. This is different from Community MVP, and it's for people that are prodigious in providing ServiceNow content that's good for developers. So if you need to follow Mark, and I'm going to assume that you do need to follow Mark, check down in the description below. we got all kinds of contact information and places where you can consume his content. So Mark, we always start at the start. Tell us how you got your start with ServiceNow. Funny story, actually. Uh, ServiceNow was nowhere even near my career path. I'm working for a MSP. Uh, we're an implementer. And uh, before we were implementing ServiceNow, we were actually doing custom software development. Eventually, our IT operations center, our network team decided that they needed to have a robust ticketing solution. A bunch of stakeholders went out and did a, some research and ServiceNow came up as the number one. We implemented it internally, really loved it, and decided that we would start offering that up to our clients. And so I kind of got baptized by fire into the ServiceNow, go learn this, and here's your first project. And how long ago was that? Uh, that was about three years now. Wow, three years. Don't let the short amount of time fool you folks. Mark is super legit. If you follow him on Twitter, you'll know exactly what I mean. And actually, I got to thank you, Mark, because I was at a customer and they wanted me to establish some guidelines for them for mid-server deployment beyond just what ServiceNow gives you on their doc site, right? Yep. And yep. so Mark was glad enough to jump on the horn with me. And after about an hour, we had squared away a bunch of other reasons you may want to deploy a mid-server. That was super helpful for me. And we really should maybe collaborate on a video about that or something. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, but you are kind of, at least in my realm, known as the kind of the mid-server wizard. I feel mm -hmm. like you, you have a lot to say about mid-servers. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, mid-servers, they're kind of the, the redheaded stepchild of ServiceNow, right? Um, we kind of deploy them and, and throw them into our infrastructure and then just let them be. And, you know, they, they're they very powerful. We can do a lot of really cool stuff in the platform with mid-servers. So uh, I kind of fell in love with them just for their underutilization and their ability to just really break out of the platform and do, you know, all sorts of really cool stuff. What's something really cool that you could only do with the power of a mid-server? Uh, I, I think that's kind of the misnomer is only with a mid-server. Technically, you can load Java code onto a mid-server and do anything. So you can do whatever you want. The mid-server really just allows you to crack open that egg that is ServiceNow, right? We don't have access to the you know behind-the-scenes code of ServiceNow. We can't really make alterations to that. So anytime that we need to make something really, truly custom and really, truly intense, we can actually load that into the service, uh, into the, the mid-server there. And that that's where everything starts to run. Um, and, and that's really, really cool from a mid-server standpoint. It, it can do a lot of really fun things. Again, I'm not the I'm not the mid-server magician here, but sure. are you suggesting that like you just load whatever scripts 
and resources you need onto the mid server. And then the ECC queue is your input output to. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, what's really fun with that is the ECC queue then becomes kind of your system of record, right? All the, all the messages to and from the, the, the service now instance mm -hmm. uh, talk through the ECC queue. What's fun is being able to, you know, kind of take that interaction and you don't have to write any custom code to make that interaction happen, right? It, it just happens out of the platform, but uh, you can actually write custom Java code that can be launched down to your, your mid server that would then take that ECC ECCQ interaction and leverage it. If something comes in from the ECCQ, I can execute some code and do some crazy stuff. So one of the, one of the things that I've done with that is uh, Knowledge19, I gave a presentation about loading uh, machine learning algorithms into the mid server and running those. Now we have all of this machine learning and you know this built into the platform. But I was doing like image classification. That's not something that we're necessarily doing in the platform. We're doing a lot of you know ticket deduplication and just really trying to figure out you know is this a high priority ticket? I wanted to do image classification. I wanted to do something that nobody had ever done, mm -hmm. uh, and that was pretty easy to do with the mid server. That's one area I feel I've always wanted ServiceNow to go, but I don't think they've had a good business use case. When I started dabbling in uh, mm -hmm. environmental health and safety, it, you can get some pretty crazy stuff. Like just a, a janitor at, a, at, a, at an industrial facility walks into a place and scan the environmental information on the barrel he sees in yep. there. And then yeah. have some system return back, like, don't touch this or call yeah, somebody yeah. immediately. Well, and even with the portability of the mid server, which is really fun too, it's just a Java package. So you can load it on a Raspberry Pi, you can load it on, you know, all sorts of things that it never was intended to be on. Uh, but, you know, that that really opens up the embedded systems. You can throw it on IoT devices. You can, you can do a lot with the mid server package. Let's say that I've got anything that runs a full Linux shell, right? I can obviously install it in a Linux shell. So, I, you know, you, we see all these prototyping boards, these Linux based prototyping boards like you know Beagle and, and, and all these other ones, very easily you could throw a mid-server package on that and have a mid-server running just on a single board computer. Um, so I, I you know I kind of throw those in the IoT device kind of category. It's not right. a traditional IoT device, but you know that's it's a connected device. So when I when I think about IoT devices, I think of devices by the by the thousand. Right. Yeah. And would you, can you imagine a, a situation where you'd have that many mid-servers, like a mid-server on each of those devices doing something practical? Um no. Uh, <laughs> fun to think about, though. But it sounds like fun. I was having a conversation with a couple of people on social media about throwing the mid-server in uh, Michael Bear specifically, uh, throwing the, the mid-server in a Docker container, right? Mm -hmm. And then having mid-servers kind of spin up randomly, be able to perform a single task and then spin it back down because I'm not using that compute anymore. Ah. Uh, you know, things like that. So where I might not say that they would go on IoT devices, I could see an application where there would be thousands of mid-servers, right? I may become agnostic to my mid-server. I don't care. You're going to spin up, you're going to run one function, and then that's the end of your life. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about the credentials being associated to it or anything anymore. You know, security. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, if it's not online, it can't be accessed. Your compute obviously goes down because you're not running any background processes, things like that. Uh, RAM utilization, any anything, and especially in you know virtualized server environments. Yeah. That, that's something to think about, right? I want to put more money towards the things that are making me money. I don't want to necessarily be running mid-servers that are you know, taking away my CPU. Right. And if you did have a script on the mid-server that did, shall we say, interesting things, I mean, you would just basically assure that that interesting script wasn't accept accessible except for the instant that mid-server sprung up and did its thing and then got decommissioned, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, this is really cool. I, I think this is the most I've talked about mid-servers since since the last time we talked <laughs> you know it, it's it's funny that you know mid servers just get they 
I don't know that they've got a bad rap. It's just, you know, it's kind of the dusty corner of service now. You know, it's it, it's fun. There's a lot that you can do with them. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's got its purpose in service now, right? And everybody's Definitely. like, you know, it does one or two things that mm-hmm. everybody does it for. But beyond that, you've really got to be in those creative scenarios in the first place to... But yeah. I, I love the fact that guys like you and uh, Michael Barr are just out there. To you, it's just another trick up the sleeve. I think of the, the mid-server as kind of the Swiss Army knife, right? It, it it may not be designed to do that thing, but could I make it? Sure. It can be stretched to the limits there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I was in a meeting today where we were talking about potentially packaging mid-ser- you know, pre-installed mid-servers with a, uh, a backup solution that we have so that we could then pull reports from the backup solution. Hmm. Let me get your opinion on this. Back at uh, Knowledge Seventeen, was it Seventeen or eight? I think it was. I think it was Seventeen. James Neal, Tim Attenborough, and I, and Hugh Nolan, did a hackathon where we we did a simulated IoT environment, hmm. and we basically had a script running every few seconds that would load a ton of information, like kind of an IoT data stream, yeah. into the system, and we were pretending that we had smart lights, and it was all feeding this information to a COO dashboard, saying, well, we know mm-hmm. how much luminosity they're pu- putting out, we know how much energy they're consuming, so therefore we can measure your carbon footprint, and we can measure your electricity cost. That's cool. Enterprise-wide, Right. And right. then we had this idea that you could drop the dial down, like decrease right. everybody's luminosity by 5%, see how that lowers my carbon footprint and cost. But I don't think we bridged that gap between I pull the lever and then something's telling the light to go down another few lumens. Right. Is that where you would kind of deploy that, like a mid-server? When you're talking about an architecture like that, a lot of the, I, I would almost say that the stream, the, the the stream that you have from the IoT devices that are, you know, telling you if they're on or off or what yeah. their actual luminosity is, I'd actually handle that in the mid-server. And then only at the time that I would want to see a report would I actually call out to the mid-server to say, give me your information, right? There's there's absolutely no reason that that data has to stream to and from your ServiceNow instance proper. You could offload all of that logic to the mid-server and then just when a report is run or when data is ready, push that through the ECCQ into the ServiceNow uh, instance itself. Dumb question here. Um, yeah, go ahead. Where is the data being stored then? Because I always thought <laughs> the data's got to be in a database, and the mid-server I always thought of as like a an execution tool versus a data exactly. storage tool. Yes, I'm I'm stretching the limits of the mid-server with this, right? The visualization that people should probably have is that, yeah, you're going to implement the mid-server, but you're kind of at the edge of a cliff, right? You have infinite building capability, but if you're not careful, right, you you can end up falling down that cliff. Uh, very much so with your your database question. There is no database on the mid server, so I'd have to build a database. I'd have to have code that goes in and out of the database to to store things. So now that we're talking it through, right, I'm like, all right, yeah, the database would be a little complicated, but you know, we could we could store it locally. There's uh, certain technologies like SQLite or things like that that'll just store SQL in a single file, which mm-hmm. would be really cool. But at that point, you've broken the egg, right? You can you can open it up and do whatever you've got to do to build whatever you have. Now, you're going to lose out on a lot of the cool stuff that ServiceNow offers. The database, the front end, the not having to worry about, uh, you know, table cleanup, primary keys, things like that. That's all going to become your concern now because, you know, you're going to architect a, a solution. But man, you know, seeing seeing people architect solutions like that at the mid-server level, it would be really, really cool. For those of you that are kind of just starting your ServiceNow journey, there's a teachable moment I'm not saying go out and create exotic solutions in whatever domain of service now you like best, but what I would say is imagine exotic solutions. Exactly. And if you can get to a point where you can say, I can bend the tool in such a way that I could pull it off, okay, that's where you're going to do a ton of learning. 
But again, mm-hmm. it's not about actually doing it because exotic solutions have downsides as well that you always have to consider. Push the limit of your knowledge to see if you could facilitate an exotic solution. Absolutely. I'll give you a little cautionary tale from my previous experience as a, as a developer. I'm one person actually supporting a single application that a uh, client had, had requested. And they put a lot of bandwidth through this application and it goes down every once in a while because like we say, it's an exotic solution. It was a one-off. And now, you know, long-term over years, literally years, I have been supporting this product by myself. Um, you know, it, it, what happens, right? As an organization, if I've got one person that knows this exotic solution, how do I support that going forward? That's just it's just insane, right? How do I show? How do I show a teammate? Here's what I did. You know, hope that you're on my level. How do I? How do I describe it to a, a junior developer? ServiceNow is really good about showing a lot of that off, right? Once I've got it in the actual instance itself, I can pick through code. I can look at things, uh, you know, without a whole lot of uh, second guessing. I guess I would say of worrying about if it's going to go down. If you if you build an exotic solution, you're tied to that baby mm-hmm. maybe for years. And there's plenty of room to put those on ServiceNow in a way that's equally cloaked and veiled. Yeah, which is why I go on rants about accelerators rah rah us we have all this experience we're going to deploy something that encompasses 500 things we've learned in the years we've been doing this Mm -hmm. that's great like 300 of them might be handy to me and then 200 of them are going to be completely invisible yet active in my instance exactly sorry for the rant no, no, I, I think it's good. I think it's a good thing to have people challenging these ideas. And, and especially with an accelerator, you know, I'm always leery with something that somebody says is going to make my job easier for less money. Like, there, you know, there's a reason that we're trained, a reason that ServiceNow is cloud hosted. There's all of these reasons that a lot of people don't really think about. But an accelerator is one of those that I'm like, I think the personal touch of a human being actually going through and doing an evaluation is, is probably better. Right? How do you know this is better for us? And I think so often we have that common practice is confused for best practice. Everybody does this, but what does everybody have to do with the way I deliver services? And I'll tell you right now, I've done more than my fair share of ServiceNow implementations. I have never once deployed an accelerator. So now you've got me on the rant. Now I'm now I'm wondering, <laughs> right? Now I'm sitting here thinking about accelerators a little bit more about how do you know what they're doing? You, you know, you're going to install this giant blob of code into your ServiceNow instance. Do you know all the little functions that are going to get, you know, it's put, crazy, put, right? Put in there. Like, do, do, do people really trust these accelerators that much? Guy, the last accelerator I ever saw, it was it was <laughs> it was a process specific partner. The customer of mine deployed it before I got there. But I literally said, what does the accelerator do? We don't know. Call the vendor, get the documentation. Oh, they didn't document it. What? Wow. So you peel back the XML and there's like 2,000 updates in the XML file. Wow. And wow. nobody can explain to me what it did. Look, I, ServiceNow is really good at automating a lot of stuff. Making a simple outbound REST call is pretty simple. I don't know of anywhere in the, you know, in the logging that if you haven't set it specifically to read all the outbound REST messages, how do you know that your accelerator isn't grabbing your data and throwing it back to a database somewhere? Like I, not right, that I'm making right. that, you know, I'm not making that assumption and I'm not saying anybody's doing that, but that's one of those considerations, you know, as, as an organization, you need to make sure that things that you're supplying are secure. The first thing in that is transparency, a 4,000 line, or I'm sorry, however many lines that you'd set of XML is not transparency. It's comforting to know that somebody 
somebody with like a three-year tenure in the space can see this plain as day. Because I think what happens is like ServiceNow will deploy a new process and thus new process-specific vendors come onto the market and they're hiring young devs and, yep. you know, you know what I mean, for the margin. It makes sure. good business sense. I'm not faulting them for it. But then no. these people will be like, oh, we've learned so much and how can we get our customers to capitalize on our knowledge? And so they, yeah. they package them up. And so at least from my side is don't attribute to malice what you could to inexperience. But I've been in this for 12 years and I feel like every three years it becomes a thing again. So, hey, I just spent like 15 minutes on mid servers and five minutes on accelerators, but I just want to make sure I'm not leaving out the rest of Mark Scott. Is there other areas of the ServiceNow platform that you're as passionate about as I think you are about mid servers? Service portal, right? I've dug into service portal a lot. I love the way that it's modularized. I love the way that it's HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, right? You, you really don't have to have a ServiceNow understanding to really get the service portal. If I told a junior developer to go off and make me 10 CSS, HTML, and JavaScript-based pages, I could very easily import those into the service portal to the point where I go, just worry about this one widget. Code is very clean in there. There, I've seen some questionable widgets, but you have the option of taking that code and fixing it, right? I love the service portal. I think it's the future of ServiceNow. I think it's where everybody needs to start looking and heading. It definitely helps you scale your instance. It definitely helps non-licensed users interact with the system, which is obvious, but you know, a lot of times we, we kind of take that for granted. The service portal is a huge tool that I think a lot of people should know about. Hmm. I've never heard somebody talk about it as if it was that new. I, I don't know that I talk about it that it's new. I talk mm -hmm. about it that it's exciting. As a developer, I look at the places where I can develop. I'm going to say this word and probably offend some people, but let's say proper development, right? Object-oriented, classic development techniques that we don't necessarily get in ServiceNow. So writing a script include, right, is, is pretty unique to ServiceNow. I'm not going to be able to take that idea and apply it all over the place in development. But mid-servers with Java packages, totally. Service portal with HTML, JavaScript, and CSS, 100%. So I, I see it as the the expansion of the platform. I see it as you know infinite opportunity. It's that it, just like the mid server, it's it's a little less dramatic of a cliff, but you're standing at the precipice of being able to do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. What cool things have you done in Service Portal then? Uh, my team and I actually built an entire data center management platform on the Service Portal. So we had a client that was a, a large data center. They had a C sharp MVC backend that they were using didn't scale well it was in azure cloud it wasn't super secure secured the way that they wanted it to be and they had already had a service now instance and they said well can we just move this into here i had the unique qualifications of making c sharp mvc applications so i was like sure let's look through the code and we actually were able to reverse out a lot of that existing code and put it into the service portal which was a lot of fun. And especially for, you know, people that are publicly facing, it's really interesting to have, you know, a service portal offering for that because a lot of times it's internal to the enterprise, right? When I have external people and it's not my customer, it's my customer's customers, that puts a huge amount of emphasis on making it right and doing it the right way. And that's, that's what we did. That was awesome. I heard you use the term, you built the app in service portal. I just want to make sure I don't have a too simplified a view, but I've always thought a service portal sure. is kind of like the front end to the back end mm -hmm. and, so, mm -hmm. and thus kind of like half the solution. Is my understanding not nuanced enough? No, no, no. I, that's very much so what it can be. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be that though, right? So when I say that we wrote it in the service portal, what we did was we took a service portal first approach, right? So how am I going to do this in the service portal and then kind of retrofitted the back end to make it work that way? It was a little opposite of what we would typically do, right? So we wanted to be able to report in 
in if I've got a, an issue with my specific cabinet in a, in a data center. That's easy. That's an incident. And that's, that's just the way that that would be handled or, you know, service requests or things like that. But we had some other things that were a lot more interesting. Uh, for example, uh, like you'd said, we had pulled in some environmental statistics. We had pulled in some utilization of heating and cooling. We had pulled and, and then had to multi-tenancy, like kind of separate all that out so that only people from a certain company could see their company's stuff. Uh, and then we had some user management, right? So if I had a user that needed to see this module, I needed to grant them permission. So what was really fun, we kind of had to make our own permission-based system. So ServiceNow is very role-based. I don't know how many people have actually really thought about this, but roles are awesome if I want to glob a bunch of permissions onto one person. But maybe I want to kind of a la carte build the permissions out. So maybe they're allowed to submit incidents and view service requests, but they're not allowed to query any financial data, right? So we actually kind of had to turn ServiceNow on its ear and create permissions that they could do. And then the, the users of those companies were able to piecemeal give the permissions to, to their end users. Hmm. It was a weird tiered approach, but it was interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we couldn't do it with roles. It was just, we'd have to have an infinite amount of roles with an infinite amount of combinations. So we, we kind of did it more with permissions. That's really cool. Actually, uh, funny enough, it's a layover from my custom development days and a, I, had a, I had a great mentor that taught me kind of the, the permission-based design system as opposed to a role-based design system, which was an interesting thing. For those who are listening who aren't quite there yet, myself included, could you give us like the 10 cent version of what's the difference between a role-based system and a permissions-based system? Sure. So a role-based system is going to say, here's a defined set of permissions that I'm going to allow this user to do. A permission-based system is going to say, I am allowed to do X, Y, and Z. So instead of just globbing a whole group on, I allow them to a la carte pick things that they're that they're allowed to do, right? So it may actually be a role-based system. You may you can think of it like that. I like to say role versus permission, but a role could potentially have multiple permissions inside of it, where a permission is just going to be one single action. So if, you, if you're looking for an, an analog and service now the pop-up when you're looking for notifications where you can kind of pick and choose which notifications you want to receive or which you don't want to receive yeah that's kind of the perfect analogy for it right i want okay. to be able to turn things on and off based on what my user finds more important right and i don't want to just blanket say no submit incidents and read all of this stuff and, and you know do all the out of the box stuff okay so like uh, in a permissions-based system it's a lot more coupled to the actual user it, it is right so each individual user is allowed to pick and choose from a menu of what they're going to be able to do. And, and normally it's not the user doing it. It's a different user right. that's do, you know, obviously assigning those permissions from a security standpoint. So a role is just a better way, well, not better, but a role is a way to kind of group permissions together exactly. as a package to distribute to people. Okay. That's really cool. I exactly. Think, I mean, I learned something today. I hope everybody else did too. So we got Orlando out, Paris mm -hmm. is on the horizon. So with what we've been told or rumors that you've heard, what area of ServiceNow's future are you most excited about? Flow Designer kind of snuck in a few really interesting integrations for CICD, which Andrew Barnes has been doing some Let's Code Happy Hours uh, based on that have been really, really eye-opening for me because I just haven't gotten into that uh, the continuous improvement, continuous delivery. I think it's continuous improvement. Uh, the continuous delivery cycle of installing scoped apps. So what the actual uh, CICD pipeline does in ServiceNow is you can literally go out to a repo, pull in a, a scoped app, install it in your instance and then run ATF against it to, to check things all automatically without a human being involved in the process. And I think that's just absolutely phenomenal. 
You know what's crazy is like when Flow Designer first came out, I was under the impression like, oh, this is going to be the more like democratized workflow builder, mm-hmm. right? The everyman's mm-hmm. builder. But I mean, all the talk out there right now is bleeding edge stuff that nobody's really considered before now because doing it in workflow was, I wouldn't say impossible, just like unwieldy. I'm sad to see workflow go just because it, it was something that worked properly and there were gotchas and workflows don't get me wrong um, if you've ever reinstalled a scoped app in production let me tell you how that doesn't go well the the workflow context just get completely screwed up they i mean not screwed up they're deleted they're gone so if you've got a scoped app in production that has currently executing workflows and you reinstall it your workflow has now abruptly ended the biggest benefit i found with, with the workflows was <laughs> it's kind of an evil benefit i loved printing the workflows off entire workflows and their their completeness and then presenting them in meetings uh, because that usually ends meetings pretty damn quickly. So, you know, it, if, if I can visually show a project manager, I can visually show uh, EO, uh, my, my executive team exactly, you know, how complicated something is. Most people go, okay, you're right. We need to really reduce the scale on this. We'll come back to the drawing board on it again. Right. Like I'll miss the wireframing aspect of Sorry, I'll miss the concept of wireframing on workflow. Mm. I will never miss how unwieldy that was. You know what 100%. I mean? Like you just never knew where those lines were going. This this gets a little hard. I guess I'll have to follow this with my cursor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd always like highlight the line. Right, yeah. right. And, you know, it, hopefully you're within the middle of a context and you can see, okay, yeah, it executed mm-hmm. there and it did this and did that. But, you know, there were there were some times where, you know, we're in design meetings and we're going, okay, wait, where where are we again? Which, which corner of the workflow right. are we working in? So. Or you get like the screen isn't quite the same size as the workflow screen. And so you'd have to like... <laughs> scroll over horizontally twice before you can scroll over vertically once i'll, I'll miss it I'll, I'll i you know i'm i'm jumping on the flow designer bandwagon i'm, I'm yeah. seeing a lot of awesome things come out of it yeah uh, it's I, time like I, I i'm at the point now where it's like i don't try in workflow first i always try in flow designer yeah first. yeah and it's interesting in the service now ecosystem you know again i've only been in it for three years right that we have that tipping point right we're like yeah it's been out for six months it's probably time for me to start like focusing my attention on whatever that product is all right last question because we're sure. kind of hitting time uh you have a choice is mm-hmm. if you could change anything about service now change anything about the ecosystem what would mm-hmm. it be or if you could do anything with ServiceNow, what would it be? Man, I kind of want to answer both um, independently. One of, one of the things I think needs to be changed about the ServiceNow in, uh, ecosystem is something that ServiceNow is already kind of working on. It's the it's the partner system. It's been broken for a little while, and and especially for MSPs, it's been a struggle. My team works on a domain-separated instance, and you know, you ask someone how much this is going to cost in ServiceNow, and the answer is always ask your sales rep, right? When you're domain-separated, you have to explain what domain separation is and then ask your sales rep. You know, nobody really runs domain separated instances anymore and they really don't know how to price the partner, you know, when we sign someone on. Uh, they fixed a lot of that, but it, it really needs to work well, it needs to work better, uh, in my opinion. I, th- I think we could grease, grease some wheels and make the, the process a lot easier. Uh, for what I would like to do in service now, I'm always pushing the boundaries. I actually wrote an app for my wife. My wife has epilepsy, and uh, a lot of times it's it's hard for her to either you know after a seizure she can't remember to take her medicine. So what I've what I've written into ServiceNow is kind of that reminder function uh, on a workflow that annoys her every once in a while to take her medicine. 
uh, what I'd like to see is, is more applications like that, right? More of those out of the box, just weird things that we, we, we've never thought of. And we're trying to, to push the platform beyond its means because I, I really, at the end of the day, ServiceNow is it's a front end and a back end and it's hosted in the cloud. Like whatever you want to do after that is up to you. You know, how long it's going to take or how much it might cost is, is another story. But, you know, it, it's a fairly infinite platform. You could build damn near anything you want into it. So I'm excited to see people that are writing weird stuff into the platform. To weird stuff. Well, hopefully we'll have an opportunity stuff. to see. I don't know if they're doing hackathon at K20 or not, but if they are, um, yeah, yeah, let's definitely. take a swing past there. Mark, thanks yeah. so much for joining me. It was short notice, but you super delivered. Awesome. I appreciate it. Uh, it was it was fun. I've always wanted to do one. I've always watched them with awe. So <laughs> I, I appreciate you having me on. Welcome to the club. And listen, for everybody out there, um, be sure to check the description. We're going to have all of uh, Mark Scott's social and resources links, and you can uh, get all the joy of following Mark as well. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. All right, bye-bye.